behave from right motive. And then we've got evil on the other shoulder pulling us in that direction. And so we need to, we need to ask ourselves this morning, do we cave in to the wicked advice coming from the enemy or do we rest in the Lord and his word for us and what he has for us? Uh, this morning, our passage is, is going to have a lot of similar themes to what we've seen all throughout this summer in the Psalms. Uh, you, you'll hopefully recognize some of the wording. We see the word wicked quite a few times. We see righteous, um, upright. There, there's very similar language to the first 10 Psalms that we've already read. Now, I, I don't want that to cause you to, to check out or go to sleep just yet, because even though the, the language is repeating itself and we're seeing these same tensions between the righteous one and the wicked, the message is going to remain of utmost importance to us this morning and, and this summer. And the tension that we have to wrestle with is where we're going to turn in light of evil all around us. Where are we going to run when evil comes assailing and when the wicked one is attacking so in looking at this passage, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give you, I've got two points. Uh, I am a teacher by trade, so my points are going to come as two questions. And I want you to be thinking through these questions as we go this morning. The, the first question is, do we flee in fear? That's our first response that we can have. Um, as we dig right into the passage, David starts, he starts by kind of setting the stage and, and setting the platform in his own mind, in the Lord I take refuge, right? He's reminding this truth to himself before we even hear the advice from the wicked. In the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. He's, he's trying to set his mind already on what is right and what is good for him to think on. <clears throat> he's reminding himself of where he should run when he needs to take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. But then right off the bat, as soon as he has got done with this sentence, we see someone is feeding him a different story. Someone is feeding him lies that contradict that his refuge is in the Lord. Uh, now, we don't really have any information about who is, is feeding this lie to him. We don't know who's holding the dialogue with David, but uh, to be quite fair, it doesn't really change the point of the conversation. Whoever is speaking into David's life right now, whoever it is, they're saying to his soul, if you catch that in verse one, how can you say to my soul, whoever is speaking to David in this instant is not trying to simply turn his path from what is right. No, whoever's speaking to David in this instant, they want to change what he believes. They're trying to speak this lie into his very soul so that he would believe the deception and that he would turn from his refuge in the Lord. They don't want him to simply change his path. They want him to believe the falsehood and commit his way to evil. And here's their advice. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now again, this, this could be David's enemies taunting him telling him to flee. Hey, we've got our bows uh, ready. Our strings have been drawn back. We are ready to fire at you in a very physical sense. We're, we're ready to attack you. It could be David's very own friends speaking bad advice to him in a moment of weakness. Hey, David, you've got these enemies assailing you. Evil is all around you. It's, it's probably time to turn tail and run. Uh, some, 
Some commentaries even believe it could be David himself just feeding this lie out of a desire to flee to a perceived safety, right? David, David's trying to preserve himself. Regardless of who it is telling him, we have this dialogue, and David is, is encouraged here to flee to safety, right? He is told that the wicked are looking to attack him and to kill him uh, in, in what is a sneaky and kind of underhanded way. They've, they've fitted their arrow in the dark to shoot at the upright in heart. Whoever it is that's attacking David, whatever it is that's assailing him, is not playing fair. It's out to get him. It's out to take him and snatch him. And, and this voice is telling him, it's time to flee. And then they leave him with this question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Essentially, evil is coming to get you. There's nothing you can do about it. If your foundations are destroyed, where are you going to go? What's going to happen? There, there's nothing you can do. So David has this dilemma. He's facing this troubling situation. His life appears to be at risk. Does he give in to the voice telling him to run and flee to this perceived safety in the mountains? Does he flee to isolation to get away from whatever the wicked are trying to snare him with? Is it time to run away from all the troubles and the worries that had plagued him in his life as king? He hadn't had a necessarily easy life as king. Maybe it's time to, to run and flee from all that had been coming against him. And to be honest, reading through this and, and reading through an account of David's life, that kind of makes sense. Right? right? Our natural tendency would be, in David's situation, we, we want to stay safe. We want to feel this perceived safety. So it, it makes sense that the advice to flee like a bird, to flee from evil, to believe that the foundations are being destroyed, that advice is, is tempting. And it would be alluring to anyone's heart in this situation. And th this is the crux of our passage today, the tension of our text. In the face of impending evil, wickedness all around you, the enemy on the attack, where do you run? Who do you listen to? There are two options that I see in this passage. The first, what David is considering right now, the first is to flee in fear. The second, which we'll get to, is to behold the face of the Lord. We'll get to that in a few minutes. David had to answer these questions in a very real way quite often throughout his time as king. He had enemies, friends, and even his own children attacking him, turning against him at various points in his life. Uh, in this passage, I, I would argue, though, that David's not talking about a physical danger coming against him to take his physical life. I think in this passage, David is referring to fleeing from evil that is out to get you and fleeing from, running from, whatever the Lord has for you at that point in time, at that moment. He's referring to running away from whatever the Lord has in store when the going gets tough when life gets hard, or when evil seems overwhelming. And as we enter today, I have to say, that can be tempting advice. We live in a world and in a culture that would have us believe that evil has the upper hand. We live in a culture that seems to be attacking uh, Christian ideologies psychologically and emotionally almost every day, it seems. 
right? We live in a culture in which it's becoming less and less acceptable to treasure Jesus and more and more commonplace to find people treasuring their own comfort and their own sin, regardless of the cost. It's getting more and more common to find people who value being able to make their own choices with their own body rather than protect the lives of an unborn child. It's less and less common to find someone who is unaffected by the multi-billion dollar monster that is the porn industry. It's less and less common to find someone unscathed by our culture's perversion of sexuality. We, we live in a day and an age where evil is pressing all around, everywhere you turn. And it would be tempting to heed this advice to run. It's, it's time to turn tail and run. Evil's too much. Can't stand up against it. Probably time to save myself. Maybe you come in here this morning and you feel the weight of evil. Maybe this morning you are overcome with anxiety and depression that can come in waves and just crash down on you. Maybe this morning you are just living for the next drink or the next pill, whatever addiction has your gaze. Maybe this morning you are feeling the weight of health issues of a spouse or a child that you can't seem to figure out. Maybe this morning you're dealing with anger that you can't control and it feels like evil has gotten the upper hand. And they're not letting up. The enemy, evil, has their arrows fitted to the string of their bow and they're not going to let up. They're not going to turn their targets away just because we're feeling overwhelmed. So, where do we run? Where do we turn? Who do we listen to? Do we listen to the voice in the back of our heads telling us it's too much of an uphill battle? Do we flee to a desolate place, away from the evil, away from the wickedness, and bury our head in the sand to avoid the arrows of the enemy? Is it time for, for Christ Fellowship to, to buy a big plot of land out in the middle of nowhere and just go live safe away, isolated? <laughs> We'd be safe. We'd be out of harm's way. We could exist and treasure Jesus together away from evil. If the foundations are destroyed, what do we do? What can the righteous do? What hope do we have? And really, that's the underlying issue in our passage today. That's the question we have to beg of ourselves. Do I believe this? Am I listening to that guy on my shoulder telling me that evil's too much and that I don't have any hope? My foundation is destroyed? Or do we turn our attention with David like he does in verse 4? Luckily, David would believe, and I, I pray that we see and believe this morning, the foundations aren't destroyed. Now, at times it may appear or feel like the foundations are shaky, like we're wavering on them. You may feel unsteady. But I can promise you, there is one foundation that cannot be destroyed. In response to this question that the enemy poses, David turns his gaze to the foundation that never wavers and never shakes. So we're going to follow David's gaze and turn our attention there. And so the next question 
the next place we can run is, is if we're not fleeing in fear, what's the other option? And David has for us, if we're not fleeing in fear, are we beholding his face? Okay, so David turns in verse 4, and we've got the guy on his other shoulder telling him where to look, where to run, and it's not away from evil. Really, it doesn't look like he's telling David to run anywhere. Rather, we read this, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. So David takes these tempting thoughts and advice, and, and he shifts his focus. And so we're, we're going to do the same. But it, it doesn't really seem like this is an alternate. This is not giving us a place to run. I can't run to heaven right now, so it would seem. So, okay, if the, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, David's taking a step back. He's saying, okay, what is my foundation in? So we have to ask ourselves this morning, what, what is our foundation in? Because if it's, if it's in ourself, in a perceived sense of safety, in a perceived sense of comfort, then yeah, maybe we don't have any hope this morning. But if, like David, our foundation is in the Lord, well, David takes a look at, okay, if our foundation is in the Lord, where is the Lord right now? The Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. This foundation cannot be touched, cannot be shaken. It cannot break and will not be destroyed. The foundation of the Lord is steadfast. So this morning, if your foundation is in the Lord, David is, as he's turning his gaze to this foundation, he's reminding himself of the truth that when evil comes knocking, trying to convince you that your foundation is, is shaking or destroyed and you don't have any hope, it's just a lie. Our foundation can never shake. It will never shake. And in fact, David takes it one step further. He says, not only is the Lord on his throne, in his temple, in fact, he is in control of whatever is going on around you. It says the Lord tests the righteous, even when it looks like evil is all around you. It looks like the wicked have the upper hand. No, the Lord's really in control. He's working through that scenario, through that situation. He's testing our faith and our resolve, and, and, and he's testing all of mankind, we read in verse 5. He's testing to, to determine who is righteous and who loves wickedness and violence. So the Lord is in control even of your troubles and your trials. David's painting a picture here of a Lord who is not only a foundation that can never be destroyed, but a, a Lord who is fiercely opposed to evil and to wickedness. <clears throat> and so, th again, this, this doesn't really seem like a place to run in light of the first few verses that we're, we're telling David to flee. But David keeps going here. He's, he's going to keep pushing on and reminds us of why is the Lord fiercely opposed to evil? We're going to look down at verse 7 here. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. So why, why is the Lord fiercely opposed to the wicked and the violent? <clears throat> why is he going to rain coals on the wicked and fire and sulfur and a scorching wind? That will be the portion of their cup. Well, it's because the Lord is righteous. 
To be righteous literally means to be free from guilt or sin. So the fact here that the Lord is righteous means that he cannot be with wickedness and evil and sin. There's, there's no rectification there. You cannot bring those two together. The Lord is righteous, and so there will be no wickedness, no evil in his presence. And David delivers to us this promise for those who are upright or righteous as well. He says that the Lord loves righteous deeds and that the upright will behold his face. So the alternative to fleeing to the mountains, to running from evil, running from wickedness, running from whatever life is throwing at you. The alternative is to turn and be righteous and to behold his face. And that's where David leaves us. Okay, there we go. That's it, that's all we gotta do. Except there's, there's one problem here, and it, it, it came to my mind very quickly, uh, and it's that this scenario has been dealt with in the Old Testament of someone trying to seek the Lord's face. Um, I apologize because I, I didn't send any verses to go up on the screen, so you'll just have to bear with me here. But um, Moses, back in Exodus, wanted to see the face of the Lord. As this scene in the wilderness where Moses was leading the Israelites through the wilderness and he has this dialogue with the Lord. He wants the Lord to go with them through the wilderness and into the promised land. He says, Lord, if, if you're not going to go with us, what, what do we have? We don't have anything. And the Lord says this in Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So it looks, looks here in Psalm 11 like <laughs> David's got his theology all wrong. He's promising that the upright, the righteous, shall behold the face of the Lord. And the Lord specifically told Moses that man can't look on his face and live. So we have what would appear to be two truths opposed to each other. One from Exodus where Moses is delivered this warning from the Lord. And then one from our psalm today is a promise that the upright will behold his face. And you think, okay, well, maybe, maybe Moses just wasn't righteous enough. Maybe he wasn't upright enough, and he couldn't behold the face of the Lord. Well, if we look ahead a few chapters in Psalms, David himself writes this in Psalms 14. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Okay, so the Lord's looking down. He's, he's testing, trying to see if there's anyone righteous, anyone seeking his face. And he comes to this conclusion. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Not even one. So uh, we're kind of left in a, in a bind this morning. What do we do with all this? We can't have all turned aside and none of us done any good and then still look at this promise in Psalm 11 and hope that that holds true of us. That's not how it works. Right? Righteousness is 
to be free from guilt and free from sin, to follow moral and divine law. And, and we read that the Lord looks down from heaven and sees that everybody has turned aside. Nobody does good, not even one. So these two truths can't both be, be true, it would seem. We can't be promised here that the righteous will see the face of the Lord, and then we're told that nobody is righteous. So how can we hope to be righteous this morning? How, how is David's promise here good news? How is this an alternative to fleeing from evil? Well, luckily for us, that's the end of this psalm. It's not the end of the story. You see, David, uh, under divine inspiration here, is pointing us ahead to a truth that he couldn't even begin to comprehend at this point in time. He doesn't even know what is yet to come, and he's pointing us to Jesus. So here's the way it's all going to unpack. You see, the Lord, in his divine omniscience, his divine all-knowing, planned from the fullness of time for these things to unfold this way. You know, he knew that when he extended this promise to David, to the righteous, that we could never and would never do enough good to fulfill this promise, to satisfy this promise, to see his face. Now, he wasn't teasing David. He's not teasing us with a promise that we can't possibly um, receive. No, when he's extending this promise through David to the righteous, it's an invitation. He's extending an invitation to enjoy him as though we were righteous and reap the benefits of righteousness even when we could never be righteous in and of ourselves. How does this happen, you might be asking? I'm glad you asked. We're going to look ahead, fast forward a few different points throughout the Old Testament. The first place we're going to look is in Jeremiah chapter 33. So Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he, kind of alongside David, but un unbeknowingly, he was also pointing ahead to this promise of the righteous. So Jeremiah, in, in Jeremiah chapter 33, says this to the people, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, he's, he's made a lot of promises to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but this morning we're going to look at how he's relating back to this promise. So he says he's going to fulfill the promise. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Okay, so that, that's the same language we're seeing in our passage here. The Lord is going to cause this righteous branch from David. And this righteous branch is going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, it being the branch. The Lord is our righteousness. So Jeremiah, unbeknownst to himself, is also pointing ahead to the fulfillment of this promise that David gave that the, the upright shall behold his face. And Jeremiah is saying there's going to be one that's going to come that will be our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Okay, so all that happens under the, the old law, the old covenant. None of those people saw its fulfillment. And then we fast forward ahead 
to a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians. Paul tells us how all these promises came to be, how all of this unfolded. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. At which point the church in Corinth is like, okay, but how are we reconciled to God if we're not righteous? We're separated from God because he is righteous and we have turned aside. We are wicked. Paul follows up and says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see it? Don't miss this this morning. God the Father planned from before time, from the fullness of time, to send his son to become sin for us so that if we're in him, we can become his righteousness. In which case, the promises that David's giving us here can be true. We can behold his face. The very righteousness that David was pointing us to in Psalm 11, the righteousness by which we need to enter the presence of God, to look upon his face, to behold his glory, God wants you to enter into his presence this morning. He wants you to gaze upon his beauty and to see his glory and to look upon his face. But he knew that we couldn't do it if we were left to our own devices. He knew we were helpless. He knew that we were broken. And he knew that we would be tempted by the lie to flee from evil because evil is going to overcome. He knew all of this. So he sent Jesus to bear the punishment and the wrath for our sin. He handled everything that's described in verses 5 and 6. He handled the portion of the cup of the wicked for us. Says the Lord, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Jesus took that for us so that we could become his righteousness and behold his face. Okay? But he wasn't left in that. <clears throat> he wasn't left in this portion. And that's good news for us this morning. He took the portion of the cup that we should have drank. He drank it in its fullness, died, and was buried. But he wasn't left there either. He rose again. He rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering sin, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father in his holy temple, at the right hand of the throne. Right now, he is living to make intercession for those who would be righteous and see his face. You see, it's this, it's this beautiful exchange that we have, we have no business taking part in, but he has blessed us with the blood of his son to cover our sins, with the intercession of his son so that we can come into his presence. And then he has blessed us with his lavish grace so that this promise in this psalm can be true of us this morning. So we need, to, we need to rejoice in this truth this morning. Christ Fellowship, if you are in Christ, you can behold his face. You can see 
his glory. We're going to see in, in, in just a minute his, his glory that, that can't be fathomed, can't be described adequately because words cannot do justice what we have the privilege of beholding. And so that's how this, this promise that David has, that's how it's good news for us. Not because we can earn it, not because we can do anything to achieve it, but because the Lord has sent his son to make a way for us to behold his face. And that's the answer for, for where we turn, where we run, when it feels like evil has the upper hand, when it feels like wickedness is pressing on us. We run to him. We run to behold his face because he's made a way for us in Jesus. Now, with this rejoicing this morning, there's, there's a somber warning to go with that. Uh, friends, if you're not in Christ, then the, the promises that David delivers, this alternative, it's, it's not true of you. If you're not in Christ, you can't be righteous and you will not be upright enough to behold his face. Rather, for you, verses 5 and 6 will be what is true. In and of ourselves, that is all we deserve. That is all we can earn. So let, let that be a warning, but you're not without an invitation this morning. There is an invitation for you, just like for those of us who are in Christ, that he sent his son to make a way for all sinners to behold his face. He made the path for anyone who would come and behold him to come by Jesus. The Lord wants you to come to him. He invites you to taste and see that he is good and to seek his face. He wants you to treasure him forever for his glory and for your joy. So if you, if you have not seen and tasted that he is good, if you have not entered into his presence and beheld his face, I pray that you would wrestle with these questions this morning. Where do you run to? Now, for those of us who have tasted and seen that he is good and have entered into this blessing, it's my prayer that, that this sermon and that all the sermons from the Psalms this summer would make the gospel even sweeter to us. It's my prayer that this psalm would drive us to the throne, that we would throw ourselves before him and, and pray that he would give us a glimpse of his face here on earth. His face is the greatest thing that we could ever long to see. And I, I pray that we, he would allow each of us to see it, even just a glimpse, and that he would capture our gaze until that day when we will see him fully, when we will be united with him. You see, the upright will behold his face is a promise that is, is already but not yet fulfilled for us, right? We, we already get to experience this relationship with him, but it is not yet fulfilled to its fullness. There will be a day when we will fully see his glory and his goodness in his face. Right now, we just get a glimpse. But John tells us a little bit of what it's going to be like in Revelation. John writes this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. 
For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The new heavens and the new earth are not going to have a sun or any light source because our light is going to come from the glory that is emanating from his face. And he invites us into that. He invites us to behold that. So this morning, we need to, we need to ponder these questions. Who are we listening to and where are we running when evil is all around us? Because it is. Evil is pressing in from all around us. Are, are we going to, like David, push off the evil voice that would have us turn aside and flee to isolation? Or, like David, are we going to run full force to the throne? We're going to behold his face. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that you would let us catch a glimpse of your glory. God, would you let us taste and see that you are good. Lord, would you captivate our gaze so that nothing else would satisfy. God, would we look on your face in wonder because you are wonderful. Lord, words don't do it justice, so I pray that you would, God, work in each of our hearts this morning to have us longing for you, longing to treasure Jesus, and God, that you would keep us steadfast until that day when we will behold your face fully. Lord, we praise you for the gospel and for this promise that can be true of us in Christ. God, we pray that we would rejoice in this gospel for for our joy and for your eternal glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.